Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about Trump and Texas. How much longer will Texas be a red state? We'll ask Lawrence Wright. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning writer for The New Yorker, and he lives in Austin. Also, The Handmaid's Tale, the shocking dystopian novel that seems more prescient now than ever. It's back on TV with a second season starting this week on Hulu. Margaret Atwood, the author, is one of our heroes. We'll speak with her about The Handmaid's Tale and its place in the age of Trump. But first, James Comey and his famous book. It's called A Higher Loyalty. For that, we turn to Jonathan Friedland. He's an award-winning columnist for The Guardian, and he's also the presenter of BBC Radio 4's contemporary history series, The Long View. He's also a regular contributor to The New York Times and The New York Review of Books. He's the author of seven books, but only two of them under his own name. He has five best-selling novels published under the pseudonym Sam Bourne. The first, The Righteous Men, became a number one bestseller in the UK and went on to sell more than half a million copies. It's been translated into 30 languages. He also served for four years as The Guardian's Washington correspondent. Jonathan Friedland, welcome to the program. Hi, John. Good to be with you. Well, James Comey's memoir is not a Washington political expose like Fire and Fury or Russian Roulette. How would you classify it? It's a uh, memoir about himself. It has also, I think, aspirations occasionally to be a sort of management leadership self-help manual. There's lots of talk about what he uh, believes is the secret of good leadership and uh, and he offers his views on that. And it's those bits which you said you have a feeling he was planning on writing even before the re- events of the last two or three years propelled him into uh, the center of controversy. You th- you, there's a sense, I think, reading it that he always had in him this book about leadership. He's observed people he's worked for and is interested by it. But above all, it is a plea for exculpation. He wants to exonerate himself in the eyes of the public. And this is, like all political memoirs in some ways, this is his attempt to do that and to explain to people that when he seemed to disappoint them, both pro-Hillary or anti-Hillary, pro-Trump, anti-Trump, he was serving a higher loyalty, as he sees it, which is to the institutions of the American Republic and also to the truth. 
and he wants to have people think he was behaving well and or at least was well motivated and honestly motivated and so it is a plea of self-justification really and yet actually as a book i think it reads slightly better than that might sound (laughs) well most of the book is not about comey and trump it's about his life before that starting in his childhood his college his marriage what lessons does he want us to learn from his life he has learned all kinds of lessons from his life before, and we should say it's quite an interesting life. You know, you, he, he comes over such a straight arrow uh, you, that people may think he's a, you know, his life would have been boring because he's this guy in a suit who is so fastidious uh, and verging on, and we'll perhaps talk about this, the self-righteous. And so you might think it's a dull story. On the contrary, he seems to attract drama in his life, even though he his own persona is so non-dramatic. So... As a teenager, he was held hostage uh, by an armed intruder, he and his younger brother, an armed intruder who turned out to be a wanted serial rapist. And that even that night um, may have, and Comey suggests this, may have instilled in him the desire to be a prosecutor of bad guys after an experience like that. There was also a huge personal loss um, in that he and his wife lost a young baby, just nine days old and that clearly had a an effect on him but as a child he was both and this is really unusual in a memoir i think both bullied and a bully and he described the experience of being bullied in quite some detail and how again that made him want to to stand up for the little guy but also saw in himself the capacity at college he joined a group of bullies you know not in a major way but he turns on somebody who's a bit odd and different and that leaves him with an experience about oh, and something about himself he doesn't like, which is that sometimes it is easier to join the crowd and, join, and do the easy thing. And he vows never to do that again. And you read all these different experiences very much through the lens of what you know will follow, which is the stance he will take on Hillary and the stance he will take on Trump. But they actually do serve as, as interesting stories in themselves. And that is even before we've got to his professional life, which is as a prosecutor, in the um, Southern District of New York, uh, and where he does prosecute the mafia and does take on and eventually jail, you know, Martha Stewart, among other people. And all of those stories are told, interestingly, but also with quite, uh, there's, there's a point there that all leads up to the decisions he will eventually take over Hillary and Trump. For example, with Martha Stewart, he decides that no matter how famous you are, Uh, and how much of a celebrity, if you lie to federal investigators, you are in effect undermining the justice system. And no matter how famous or big a celebrity you are, you have to go down for that and pay a price. And you realize that's obviously in his head when he makes decisions later about Trump and Hillary. Well, the climax of the book and the central event in his life, as he sees it, is his dinner for two with Donald Trump at the White House, where Trump asks for loyalty in Comey refuses. This has huge significance for him, far beyond the one exchange. Uh, tell us what this means and its place in his book. Well, it, absolutely, as you say, it is uh, the one of the most dramatic scenes in the book. There, uh, it, it feels as if everything, in some ways, is leading up to that encounter. He's obviously taken quite, and we know this from the memos that have been published since, that he took not exactly contemporaneous notes, but notes straight afterwards. So he's got a great eye for detail. But that request for loyalty, um, I think it's interesting because Comey's account is not wholly self-serving because 
the Trump, Trump asked him for his personal loyalty, and, and Comey is reminded of those initiation rituals in the mafia that he has not exactly witnessed, but he has dealt with as a prosecutor. And he feels that this is what's happening, that effectively Don Trump, rather than Donald Trump, is trying to co-opt Comey into his family, really, in the mafia sense of that word, and that Comey refuses to let that happen to himself. But why it's, why it's interestingly not wholly self-serving is he, he includes what he you know, doesn't do. He doesn't say no to Trump. He doesn't refuse Trump and say, how dare you ask me for loyalty? My loyalty must be to the Constitution or my loyalty must be to the uh, uh, FBI and the American Republic or the justice system. Instead, he um, simply says, well, I'll offer you my honest loyalty, which is a sort of fudge. Um, in which he he can live with himself because he thinks he stood up to him. But it was obviously ambiguous enough that the dance with Trump continued uh, and it took some months before he was eventually fired. And I thought, oddly, because it was not wholly admirable, Comey's inclusion of it was quite admirable because you, he allows the reader to judge him in some ways quite negatively. And there are later moments where Comey does indeed scold himself for not having fully stood up to Trump or had to have simply said the word no. Well, the real challenge of the book is not showing that Trump is a is a bad person. That's that's pretty easy. It's showing that Comey himself did the right thing when he revealed to the public that the FBI had reopened its investigations of Hillary's emails 11 days before the election, which changed the campaign dramatically. Remind us about how he explains how he defends himself in violating the FBI's longstanding policy of not commenting publicly on investigations underway. His logic is that once he had found out that more emails had surfaced on the computer of the laptop computer of Anthony Weiner, who was under investigation for sending these uh, sexual messages to somebody underage, and of course, Weiner was married to Uma Aberdeen, close aide of um, Hillary Clinton. He then thinks to himself, if I conceal that fact and Hillary Clinton is elected, as all the polls at the time suggest she will be, American voters would have every right later to say that the key facts were held back from them and that therefore they did not vote for in, in the November election in full possession of the facts they should have had. And he worried to himself that he would then be culpable of leaving a cloud, a permanent cloud, over the future presidency of the future Hillary Clinton, President Hillary Clinton, and would have imperiled the legitimacy of her president, presidency by not revealing it. And so he imagines these two doors facing him, one saying speak and one saying conceal. And he knows that if he goes through the door marked speak, every Hillary Clinton supporter will hate him and blame him. Uh, but if he goes through the door conceal, he would be culpable for delegitimizing what he imagines is the imminent presidency of Hillary Clinton. Okay, that's what he says, but uh, but there's there's some buts here. But, oh, absolutely. There are so many buts here because the first one is he's only in this um, spiral of logic because he himself had earlier spoken when he closed the investigation in July of that year into Hillary Clinton's emails and therefore, he had set a kind of precedent of disclosure. So he was right that having disclosed when they were closed, the investigation, it would look somehow wrong and unfair to not disclose when it's reopened. But this is entirely a trap of his own making, because in July, 
he needn't have said anything. He could have just followed the regular procedure, which was to simply close the investigation and not make an announcement and leave it to others or a formal statement from the Department of Justice to, to close it. Instead, he felt this need to say something then, which creates the need to say something else in October. And all of that is because he's thinking, he's overthinking, and he's thinking too politically. He's thinking about the implications of what will people say if I haven't done it. He's a, for one thing, he's listening to the opinion polls. And what is the director of the FBI doing listening to opinion polls when making a decision of this kind? And as we know, the opinion polls turn out to be wrong. But also he's thinking politically about what, you know, anti-Hillary people on Fox News in, 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 in a month's time when she's elected will be angry that this information was held back, not realizing that, of course, those people are going to be angry whatever happened. And there was never going to be any placating or uh, appeasing those people. And instead, he should have just done his job as the director of the FBI. Instead, he was thinking like a Washington player, five moves ahead. How will X react to this if I do that? How will Y react if I do that? And that's how he got himself tangled up in knots. Well, one of the themes of the book from the very first pages is that Comey is aware of his own weaknesses and failings in a way that Donald Trump isn't. And he says his biggest weakness is being prideful and overconfident. That's a quote. It seemed to me that if Comey had written a book about how being prideful and overconfident had led him to violate longstanding department policy with disastrous results 11 days before the election, if he admitted that his self-awareness failed him that day, we would admire him in the way that he would like to be admired. But he's still feeling defensive, and he still wants people to give him credit for having made the right decision. Or do you think I'm going too far here? Well, I, I, I go with you three quarters of the way there, John, because I think the, the, it was his own flaws that led him to make a decision which turned out to be disastrous. But I don't think it was the prideful or overconfident flaw. It was this flaw of, the, of thinking that he had to think politically. The self-righteousness and sanctimony of the book is definitely there, and it's there all the way through, and it is a flaw of his. And I agree with you that um, the decision was bad and he should be more self-critical. But I don't think he, I think his motive was honest. I think he was trying to think what is the honest thing to do in terms of the institution, but he got it wrong because he thought that part of the institution's obligation is to think about how people will regard, you know, the judgments that come later. And I don't think that should have been part of his calculation. The other big but that needs to be mentioned here, and it massively undermines his argument, is the inconsistency with which he applied this sense that he was obliged to, obligated to, disclose, and that is he did not disclose the investigation into Donald Trump and collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. That investigation was also underway in October, and yet he made no statement about that, even as he was making a statement that the file had been reopened on Hillary Clinton. Now, his argument for that is, ah, but it's kind of technical that the investigation into Donald Trump was not nearly so far advanced, and they didn't want to tip off potential suspects or witnesses. I, as I read that, just marked in the margin, not good enough. <laughs> that is not good enough a reason to distinguish between one candidate and the other, to reveal something damaging about the one, but hold back something damaging about the other. Not good enough. Jonathan Friedland wrote about James Comey's book, A Higher Loyalty for The Guardian, and I wrote about it for The Nation. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, John.
Now it's time to talk about Trump in Texas, the state where he got more votes than any place else. But how long can Texas remain a red state? For that, we turn to Lawrence Wright. He won the Pulitzer Prize for his book, The Looming Tower, on how the CIA could have stopped the 9-11 attacks. Now it's a 10-part series running on Hulu. And his book on Scientology, Going Clear, became a feature documentary for HBO. He writes for The New Yorker, and he lives in Austin. His new book is God Save Texas. We spoke with him at the L.A. Times Festival of Books in Los Angeles. I want to talk about Texas politics. California and Texas right. are both 39% Latino. California, maybe you've heard, Democrats hold all the statewide yeah. offices. In Texas, it's been the opposite for a very long time. Hillary Clinton got 62% of the vote in California. She got 43% of the vote in Texas. Obviously, demography doesn't explain the difference between California and Texas. How do you explain the, the political differences? Well, let's talk, first of all, about, you know, the Hispanic. You know, you brought that up from the, you yeah. know, we're about the same number of Hispanics. It's a, Hispanic is the largest ethnic group in California and will be in Texas in 2020. And the, the difference is they vote in California and they don't in Texas. And why is that? Uh, I asked Garnet Coleman, who's a state rep from, uh, from Houston, who's black, and blacks vote at a higher rate than whites do in Texas. Wow. But why is it that um, Hispanics don't vote here and, and they do in California? And he said that um, he attributed to the Cesar Javas, uh, the grape workers uh, union. Wow. Is, and he said when you join a union, you become political. And in Texas, uh, we're a right-to-work state. So uh, it's very difficult to, to get into unions. And I think that's part of it. But if you take the ethnic thing out of it and you look at who is not voting, it's the young, the poor, and the poorly educated. And we have a lot of those in Texas. Of course, you have also in California. But in, in Texas, those, many of them are Hispanic. I think that they're disillusioned. They haven't been given a candidate that really speaks to them. Uh, there are candidates like the, the Castro twins, you know, or future possible statewide candidates, but they haven't offered themselves yet. So, you know, they just have not had uh, the kind of motivation that uh, would stimulate a, a real resurgence of Hispanic voters in Texas. Well, if, the, if unionization has been the key to California's mobilization of Latino voters, which I think is true. It seems like it's going to be a long time before anything like that happens. No, there has Texas. to be something else, you know, because the unions are not going to get a foothold in Texas for, you know, the foreseeable future. But uh, thinking it, it has to be the candidate and someone who really speaks to the Hispanic uh, situation. Well, let's talk about Beto. Beto O'Rourke, the hope of the Democrats. Uh, challenging Ted uh, Cruz. Ted Cruz. Yeah. Tell us about Beto. I just met him yesterday, and uh, we were in a green room together uh, really early in the morning. There are 254 counties in Texas, and he's been to 240 of them. <laughs> many of them have never seen a candidate before, and, and many of them are very red and never voted for a Democrat, but he's been out working really hard. He's a very charismatic, attractive candidate, personally charming and appealing. Uh, he's, 
set a record in fundraising uh, in the last quarter and uh, has outraised you know Ted Cruz considerably. And so let's say the, you know the positive things going in his favor are those he's appealing, uh, he's young, uh, used to play in a punk rock band, you know. So there's a there is a constituency that hasn't been tapped in the past. Um, he uh, fluent in the in the issues. Uh, he's seen as a kind of bipartisan figure, you know. Now those were the advantages. The disadvantages. Uh, number one, <laughs> we've never elected anybody from El Paso to statewide office. El Paso is seen as being uh, a distant uh, galaxy, you know, it's its own universe. And um, El Paso is the way people from Los Angeles get to Marfa. Well, El Paso is halfway between Houston and L.A. Yeah. To just put a, you know, a, a note on how, what a large entity we're having to deal with. Uh, the Republican Party is still very much dominant. It doesn't, it doesn't represent the real demography of the state. The state is far more progressive than its elected representatives would, would have you believe. Part of it is gerrymandering, and, and part of it is that I think you know, Democratic voters haven't been inspired for a long time. The real question is, you know, will Beto be able to rally the Hispanic vote in South Texas, create a historic turn in the state, and it's difficult but not inconceivable. You have a great image in your book, uh, God Save Texas, where you describe the, uh, if you look at the, the uh, political map of the United States, you say uh, Houston, Dallas, and Austin are blue dots in red middle America. Yeah. They're politically different, though. Let's talk a little bit about those Democratic strongholds in Texas. Well, Austin is probably the most liberal city in the entire southern tier of the United States, from Washington to San Francisco. If you look at you know, presidential votes and stuff like that, Austin seems, to, by some metrics, to be the most liberal. And um, it's funny to me, you know, with all the attacks on Austin by our political leaders, by conservative metrics... For instance, entrepreneurship, uh, you know, <laughs> yes. job growth, and so on. Austin is the clear champion in the in the state, and I think you know people are drawn to Austin because of its values and its political culture. Then uh, there's Houston, huge uh, city, huge, huge place. And in if I were going to compare it to another city in America, L.A. would be the one that would be, partly because of the geometry of the freeways and stuff like mm-hmm. that, they strung out in the same way that Houston is. It's a coastal city, and it's now been awarded the title of being the most diverse city in America uh, because there's not a single ethnic group that is a majority. Also, it's a city that takes in more refugees than any other city in America. Wow. And 20% of all the people in Houston are born in another country. Uh, it's fantastically diverse and intends to be more so, according to their mayor, Sylvester Turner, their second black mayor. Uh, the previous mayor was the only lesbian mayor in the United States. So, you know, it, it confutes a lot of images that people have about uh, about Texas and about Houston. Dallas, I have a particular place in my heart for Dallas because I left there, I fled Dallas because mm. it was a right-wing uh, repository, you know, uh, and, and, of course, Kennedy was killed there when I was uh, in high school. And I think that assassination did more good 
for Dallas than any other thing. I mean, Dallas was humiliated. That's a shocking statement that assassination did more good for Dallas than anything it was, else. It was a city that was off the rails, politically speaking, and uh, it was full of itself and prideful, and um, there was a kind of uh, corporate fascism that was ruling the city, and, and people accused Dallas of killing Kennedy because they hated Dallas. There was Dallas didn't kill Kennedy. You know, a socialist killed Kennedy. I didn't even know we had one. You know, I didn't. It was rare to meet a Democrat. But uh, anyway, this Dallas was taken down like no city in America has ever been. And um, and there's a there's a similarity between the words humiliation and humility. Uh, if you can go through humiliation and acquire humility. Then, then, then you have made use of the tragedy, and that's what I think happened in Dallas. And you know, I was talking to a, a, a friend of mine in Dallas who's a reporter on the morning news, and you know, he knew that I'd been very critical of the city. And we were there after the police shootings in July of last year, and uh, he asked me what I thought of Dallas now, and I said I think Dallas is a noble city. Wow. And I think it's. It's been able to take suffering and tragedy and turn it to something good. Can you give us any sense of the schedule of Texas turning uh, back from red to blue or at least to purple? When well, might this happen? It, it will happen because uh, for several reasons. One is that the cities are in Texas are blue. All the cities are blue. And, and that's where the growth is happening. And, uh, and a lot of the growth is minority growth. Uh, the, the other reason is that, you know, Texans are already far more progressive than our elected representatives. For instance, most Texans want to have undocumented uh, migrants uh, be given citizenship or some kind of, you know, green card or something like that that would protect them. Responsible gun, gun ownership. I did, a lot of Texans don't quarrel with that. But, uh, you know, if you listen to our political figures, you would never know that, you know, that they represent a people that have different opinions. Now, the other thing is that I think the Republican Party in, in, in Texas has taken an overdose of some kind of hallucinogen hmm. that makes them think that they're living in another future. Anglo population is diminishing in terms of its presence and influence, and it's almost an entirely Anglo party. And they've been antagonizing Hispanics for a long time. Most recently, with the Sanctuary Cities Bill, the particular feature of that is the show me your papers provision, which stigmatizes every Hispanic uh, differently from any other Texan. And, uh, and then there's the intolerance towards homosexuals, the, the opposition to gay marriage. They recently, just a couple of weeks ago, we had a, you know, the state Republican convention, and they refused to allow a booth to the log cabin, the gay Republicans. Well, what statement are they trying to make? You know, they're, they're so backward-looking. They're so hostile to public education. And, uh, and, and, and they're so concentrated on social conservative issues like the bathroom bill that they tried to force through. Those are not winning propositions for a future party. When they become losing propositions will be when uh, people in, Amer in Texas go vote. We're always at the bottom or right next to it in voter turnout. When that changes, Texas will turn blue very quickly, I think. 
Lawrence Wright, his new book is God Saved Texas, A Journey into the Soul of the Lone Star State. Thanks so much for talking to us today. My pleasure. Thank you, John. Now it's time to talk about The Handmaid's Tale, that great work of feminist dystopian fiction. It returns to TV for a second season this week on Hulu. We talked about it a year ago with the woman who wrote it, Margaret Atwood. She's written more than 20 novels and 30 or 40 other books, poetry, essays, short stories, other stuff. Today we want to talk about The Handmaid's Tale. It's a story about the United States after a coup has abolished democracy and established a theocratic dictatorship. The book has been translated into more than 40 languages. Now it's a Hulu miniseries and starring Elizabeth Moss, who is fabulous. It's also the first work of feminist dystopian fiction ever featured in a Super Bowl halftime ad. So, Margaret Atwood, welcome. Thank you. Is it the first work of fiction, period, that was ever featured in a Super Bowl halftime ad? I I think so. Those ads are mostly, you know, beer and and cars. Well, there you go. Good company. Anyway, congratulations to you and Hulu for getting this on TV during Trump's first 100 days. That's quite an achievement. Well, I, th- I think it was a, I think it was a coincidence because they started planning the series quite a long time before the election, and they started putting it together. I think Elizabeth Moss signed in April of 2016, and they started filming in September of. 2016. It's just that the election gave it much more relevance. Yeah. In fact, the LA Times called the Hulu Handmaid's Tale shockingly relevant in the age of Trump. But what would it? What would have happened if, if Hillary had won? What would have been like to well, watch it Well, I think it would have been like, oh, look what we just avoided. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it might have been that, or it might have been Hillary is the new Ann Dowd playing Aunt Lydia. It might have been <laughs> We don't actually know. Oh, dear. It, the Handmaid's Tale does seem shockingly relevant in the age of Trump, but I, I don't think you were thinking about Donald Trump when you wrote it, were you? I was not thinking about Donald Trump back in 1984 when I started writing it. I was thinking about dictatorships of the 20th century and uh, also the kinds of talking that people were already doing in the United States at that time, which I was finding in magazines and newspapers, and they were talking about what they would like to do should they get the power to do it. So which, which of... Uh, recently acquired women's rights would let they like to abolish and roll back, among other things. In the story of The Handmaid's Tale, the birth rate has fallen drastically because toxic pollution has interfered with fertility, and women who are still fertile are enslaved to ruling class men and their wives to bear children for them. There's also a totalitarian Christian police state fighting a... Yeah, I wouldn't call it Christian. What would you call, I would it? call it? I would call it just, it's, it's theocratic and it's literalist, but the part about loving your neighbor is not in there. <laughs> That's an excellent point. As Rebecca Mead wrote in that wonderful piece in The New Yorker, the book and the miniseries, quote, do not map closely on to the present moment, mostly because Donald Trump, while he's a misogynist, he's 
not particularly religious. He likes supermodels. He brags about grabbing pussy. Nevertheless, the book does seem shockingly relevant. I wonder what you see as the parts that feel most familiar today. Okay, so Donald Trump, and, and when you ask people who know the world, why did the evangelicals vote for him? Yeah. So it's not Donald Trump you're looking at there. It's who supported him and, and why. And uh, there's a biblical explanation for everything, and I do know the Bible quite well, because I'm Canadian of a certain generation, and we had it in school. So what their explanation is, is that God has often used ungodly figures to advance God's agenda. And they will mention people like Nebuchadnezzar and things like that. So they see Donald Trump as an ungodly figure who nonetheless has been used by God to advance God's agenda, namely theirs. So that's how it maps onto the present moment. That is the that is the thinking of the supposedly Christian evangelicals who voted for Donald Trump, hoping that he would help them get what they wanted. And of course, we have Vice President Pence, who is a religious patriarch and misogynist. Yeah, well... Uh, I don't know about his misogyny, but but certainly he is much more orthodox, shall we say, than Donald Trump has ever been. And basically the whole return to patriarchy seems very much a part of the Trump White House, just those pictures of all the old white men uh, wearing uh, blue suits shoulder to shoulder. Uh, yeah, I think that's part of the message. And part of the message is, quote, America is back, and that's what they think of America as being. But as I've said on a lot of occasions, underneath the 18th century Enlightenment that gave you the Constitution, there is a 17th century theocracy that was Puritan. And one thing the Puritans and the Protestants in general did was they got rid of all of the female saints and demoted the Virgin Mary. So that they really got rid of a lot of uh, female iconography and symbolism that had been in Christianity before. They just dumped it out the window. And what remained was pretty solidly male. In fact, somebody has a study of people who were stolen away by indigenous people in the 17th century, and among those people stolen, all of the men wanted to get back. And very few of the women did because they were actually having more fun among the indigenous <laughs> oh people where women had higher status. This, this, is, uh, this is not the way they told the story in that John Wayne movie, The Searchers. They did not. <laughs> <laughs> no, they didn't. Uh, yeah, there's, there's quite a lot of actually research done in this area. And there's a book called The Unredeemed Captive in which... Uh, woman is stolen away, and, and they, they find it where she is and try to get her to come back, and she just doesn't want to. I think I saw you for a minute on screen in the Hulu miniseries, mini the, the scene where one of the handmaids, one of the girls says she was gang-raped at 14 and had an abortion, and there's a circle of women around her, and you're, you're part of the circle. And So there's, there's two circles around two circles. her. One of them are the handmaids, and the others are the Aunt Lydia's. The Aunt Lydia's, and, and yeah. the, the head Aunt Lydia says, after hearing the story of the gang rape at 14, whose, whose fa fault was it? And, and what do you answer? Well, the circle answers her fault. And my character, or I should say the central character, Elizabeth 
boss playing Alfred isn't pointing and saying that, and my character bops her over the head to make her join in. Pay attention and start chanting now. <laughs> so whose fault was it? Her fault. And who led them on? And what's your answer? She did. She did. So in my generation, people used to say she got herself raped, mm. you know, as if it was an autonomous act. And then Aunt Lydia asks, why did God allow such a terrible thing to happen? Yes. And that they say, teach her a lesson. Teach her a lesson. And so I wonder what it was like for you to do that scene. Oh, I think it was pretty painful. I mean, it's, it's always, it, it brings back that whole generation. Of, well, the good old days, you know, the good old days. That's what things were like. So if mishaps happened, it was your fault. Well, the week that Trump took the oath of office, you wrote a piece for The Nation on the subject of the obligations of the artist in the age of Trump. You you looked at the argument that artists and writers have a special responsibility to speak truth to power. A Yeah, you can't tell them to do that. You can't tell artists and writers what to do, uh, but some of them will do that. Yeah, I, I thought you had a wonderful argument where you said uh, artists are being lectured on their moral duty. How come other other professionals aren't? And who are? <laughs> Let's hear it for dentists. <laughs> yeah. what, about, what about the obligations of dentists in the age yeah, of Trump? About them? Yeah, the obligations of dentists in the age of Trump. Stand up for dentistry. <laughs> uh, I don't think dentistry is actually being threatened yet, although it might be soon. When you wrote A Handmaid's Tale, that was, of course, in the age of Reagan, the middle of uh, Reagan's uh, eight-year term. Did you write A Handmaid's Tale out of some kind of sense of obligation to speak truth to power? No, I, I, I don't. Um, as I say, you can't tell artists and writers to, that they have a special obligation as artists and writers. And in fact, there's nothing inherently sacred about books. There's nothing inherently sacred about art, and books and art have often been employed in the service of dictatorship. So uh, let's not get too holy about that. I write things that interest me, and that's what authors do. So if they're writing something that doesn't interest them, it's not going to be very good, is it? <laughs> uh, so so I think, I think we're, always, we're always piling onto artists and writers' obligations that ought to be the obligations of every citizen. So what kind of artistic responses to Trump might be uh, possible? Of course, we have lots of satire that makes fun yeah. of Trump. Yeah, it, it never really... I mean, it, it's interesting and and funny to those on a certain side of politics, but I I don't think that Charlie Chaplin's satire of Hitler stopped Hitler from doing World War II, yeah. did it? No. no. So what kind of art is likely to come out of it? If if nothing else, I would say the art of witness. So people making a record of the times we live in, but the times we live in are so volatile and so changeable. You don't know from one week to the next what this administration is likely to do. Or say, I think people just haven't got a grip on it yet. 
The New Yorker profile by Rebecca Mead says that you went to one of the uh, women's marches the day after Trump's inauguration. What what was that like? The one in Toronto. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's even at one remove for people in Canada. It's not actually our president, but I'm, people were marching in sympathy. So they were showing support for for people south of the border, and that is <laughs> that's kind of an odd thing when you come to think of it, but people all over the world did that. March in Toronto was, was one of those, and what happened with all of those gatherings was they were a lot bigger than people thought they were going to be. So there was this huge mass of people. I'm not sure that much marching took place because it was hard to move. And also you couldn't you couldn't hear anything. <laughs> so you couldn't hear any of the speakers. But you were there. You were there. <laughs> so I saw a lot of old friends. Hi <laughs> Can you hear anything? No. <laughs> like your hat. I saw a lot of interesting signs. Yeah, tell us about the signs. Well, the signs were great. I think my favorite sign was a, an older woman holding a sign that said, after 60 years, I'm still holding... Why am I still holding this effing sign? <laughs> but there are also a number of Handmaid's Tale signs uh, of many kinds, a lot that said, make Margaret Atwood fiction again, which wasn't very encouraging to me personally, but I think they meant my book. I think they meant make the Handmaid's Tale fiction. That's again. what they meant. That's what they meant. Margaret Atwood wrote about artists in the age of Trump for The Nation. You can find it at thenation.com. Margaret, thanks so much for everything you do, and thanks for talking with us today. And thank you. We spoke with Margaret Atwood a year ago. The second season of The Handmaid's Tale starts this week on Hulu. Finally, a word about Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide, hosted by the sports editor of The Nation, and featuring Dave Zirin's interviews, his commentary, and his rants. So even if you're a sports fan who hates politics, or a political junkie who hates sports, you'll find something to love in this podcast. It's posted every Tuesday, now at thenation.com slash edge of sports. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our show is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith. Special thanks to William Broughton for additional production help this week. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, 
fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.